catch up on all the live shows right here on africatechradio.com. Tomato may not have been an important element for meals in Nigeria before the 1900s, but as global interdependence grew, tomato became a staple food in every household in Nigeria. While some Nigerians eat tomato raw as a fruit, a greater number have it ground along with pepper and they use it for cooking. How much love do Nigerians have for this vegetable, you want to ask? Tomatoes account for nearly one-fifth of Nigeria's vegetable consumption, and it's about the most important ingredient in making the popular meat stews, soups, and homemade sauces, of course, with rice dishes. The red fruit or vegetable is known for its richness in lycopene, fiber, and other key vitamins and minerals, and it's also known for its disease-fighting phytochemical content. This love for tomatoes should be a good thing for Nigeria because with an estimated annual output of about 2.4 million tons, Nigeria is about the largest producer of tomatoes in sub-Saharan Africa and the 12th in the world. But about 98% of the semi-finished tomato paste used to produce processed tomato paste in Nigeria is imported, making Nigeria the third largest importer of tomato paste in Africa. Such a paradox, right? Most tomato processing plants in Nigeria simply package imported tomato paste, and these imports, according to a 2017 um, estimate, cost about $360 million annually. What do we think are the problems? First, about 80% of the farmers still use traditional means of farming in their cultivation, and then in harvest and distribution, and there's a major anomaly in that and that there is a significant post-harvest loss of approximately 45% of the tomatoes cultivated in the country because the link between the farmers or the sellers and the buyers who use these tomatoes for consumption seem to be broken. In September 2021, Nigerian agro-processing company Tomato Joss, led by American-born entrepreneur Mira Meta, officially launched its tomato paste factory in Kaduna State almost seven years after it first started growing tomatoes in the country. The facility is set to be the third largest of its kind in Nigeria and can produce one carton of tomato paste sachets every minute. A year before that, in 2020, the company raised about £3.9 million in funding, which was led by Goodwill Investments through its West African partner, Althea Capital, with participation from Acumen Capital Partners and Vested World. There's something quite different about how Tomato Joss is going about, you know, its own process, despite competition from big money bag competitors. In this episode, the CEO and founder of Tomato Joss Farming and Processing Limited, Mira Meta, shares some insights with us. This episode of Africa Tech Radio Careers is targeted at young Africans who are searching for stories and real-life experiences of people who have walked a path that they want to walk and people who can provide some guidance. Welcome, Mira. I'm really, really pleased and glad to have you on the show. Hi, Tony. It's such a pleasure to be here and thank you so much for having me. Good. How long did it take to start? You know, I heard it took about seven years from when the idea was birthed till, you know, the um, the actual processing plants. Now it's like we're actually in business now. So how long did it start? What are the stages and the time it took for like you know, the different stages to achieve and get yeah. to this point? <laughs> well, it's actually taken even longer than seven years because I first had this idea back in 2008. 
And I didn't really start acting on it till 2013. And I didn't start the company and found the business until 2014. So if you take 2008 to now, it's actually, you know, more like close to, oh my gosh, close to 14 years um, since I actually had the idea. And I guess for any young entrepreneur out there, you know, don't be afraid if it takes you a while to put your ideas into action. Um, you know, I moved to Nigeria in 2008 and I did a lot of work with hospitals in northern Nigeria. I used to drive out to Kano from Abuja and Bauchi and Joss and a lot of the sort of northern areas, Katsina and all these places. And I remember, you know, certain times of year when you would see the tomatoes, exactly like what you said, you know, there are millions and millions of smallholder farmers that farm tomatoes, but the price fluctuates so much that there are times of year when the farmers, the basket is worth more than the tomatoes and the farmers really have no option but to try and just dry the tomatoes on the side of the road and see if they can somehow salvage them to sell them later in the year when the rains come in. And at the same time, tomato has become this huge part of the Nigerian diet. It's a daily consumption food, even for, you know, the poorest consumers. Um, certainly, you know, even at the base of the pyramid, people are eating stew or jollof, you know, uh, once a week, they're eating some kind of a tomato product. And, you know, it, <laughs> I could never imagine working in Nigeria without the infrastructure of another company supporting me. You know, at the time I was working for a nonprofit, I had, you know, uh, my housing was paid for, my green card, you know, my uh, immigration papers were taken care of by the organization. I didn't have to do any of that stuff on my own. And so it was just this idea that I had that like, hmm, this could make sense. Hmm, this could make sense, you know. And it really took me until my second year at Harvard Business School before I actually said, you know, maybe I should stop thinking about this as a pipe dream and start to see whether it can be a reality. So even from then, you know, let's say if we started the journey in 2014 when I founded the company, I thought by 2021, I would be, you know, exiting at some multi-hundred million dollar valuation and selling the company and retiring <laughs> early. And that is, you know, certainly not the case because we're still probably, I would say, three months out, three to four months out from launching our retail product seven years in. So things take a long time. You know, you, you're obviously a tech guy, Tony. One of the challenges that we have in farming is that, you know, the, the learning cycle is a whole year, right? If you do something on the farm and you realize, hey, this worked or mm, that didn't work. You've got to wait a whole year before you can implement it a second time. And I think that that long learning cycle is part of the, you know, what's contributed to what I would say feels like a very long journey at this stage. <laughs> okay, so now, looking back, 7 to 10 to 14, past a decade, what would you say were the major steps yeah. and stages? And how long did it take you to achieve or get to those different stages? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the first thing was that I had to do some desk research, right? I had this pipe dream, but the first thing was, what are the actual levers of this business, right? I need to understand what will make tomato processing and a branded tomato product and a domestic tomato product successful in Nigeria, right? And so I did have to do some you know, research on the industry. I'm not a farmer um, by background. I don't have an agronomy degree. You know, I studied health and then I went to business school. So, um, you know, when I went out to do research and met with other people who are, you know, in similar industries or in the same industry, everybody told me that you have to focus on raw material. And you mentioned in your intro that, you know, we've tried to do things in a slightly different way. I would say that focusing on the farming before raising money for the fact 
factory was certainly um, a different approach than what many of you know our better funded peers in the industry were doing. Um, and so that you know the goal basically was let's make sure that we can de-risk growing tomatoes. Growing tomatoes is the hardest part of making tomato processed tomato products. Getting your supply chain in order is the hardest part. So you need to make sure that you have the right quality of fruit. You need to make sure that you have the enough fruit. You need to make sure that the fruit is coming in at the right time. Remember, tomatoes, unlike maize or rice or sorghum, is very, very perishable. So you can't have 100 tons coming in one day and then two tons coming in the next day. You've got to space it out you know, based on what your factory can do. And then you've got to get the price right, right? And that was really the big issue is that all these farmers, you know, their tomatoes are rotting on the side of the road. Everybody's crying out, oh, let's get cold storage or, you know, we need to do post-harvest better handling of the fruits. But really the issue is that the farmers are not productive. You know, the farmer's cost to grow tomatoes was higher than the cost that a factory could afford to pay and be globally competitive. And so we really needed to work on how do you make it more cost efficient to grow tomatoes? And that took four years. It took us four seasons to figure out, you know, based on infrastructure challenges where we were in Nigeria, based on input challenges, based on irrigation challenges, based on educational gaps. It took us four years to figure out a system to grow tomatoes at a competitive cost with, you know, where, let's say China or Italy, you know, or the US where, you know, a lot of tomato paste is produced. So yeah, four years to, um, to just get the farming right then a year to raise the money for the factory, and then another year to actually set up the factory, which by the way, we did during COVID, which had its own challenges because, you know, COVID kind of messed up global supply chains for everybody. And now finally, you know, after figuring out how to farm, raising the money for the factory, building the factory, we're now able to start building the brand and, and getting the product out there. So yeah, it's uh, it's been multiple stages so far. And you know, the next stage, uh, launching a retail product is going to come with a, a whole other set of problems that, you know, it's like, we don't even know what we don't know, right? So we're looking forward to it, but I know there's more challenges ahead. Hmm. Wow. So research, grow tomatoes, get funded, start processing, then look into um, getting the brand and uh, what else again? The retail. Okay. Launching a retail you know, process and then the brand. Okay. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. exactly. Now, what were the major challenges you faced um, while like all through this journey, this process? What were the major challenges you faced? I, I want everything from regulators yeah. to uh, you already mentioned um, smallholder farmers lacked education and 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 they really didn't know how. So just let me know the challenges, all of them. Oh man, how much time you have? We could spend the whole rest of the time talking. Uh, okay, about okay, okay. Maybe we we'll just maybe um, we we'll just do like a top list, you know, five, six. We'll do a couple of the ones that are top of mind. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, if you have more questions, you can always dive in. Because it's, you know, I mean, for anybody, right, running a business is hard. The issue of capital, obviously, is a big challenge, right, raising money. I was very privileged to have, you know, um, a Harvard business degree, which gave me legitimacy. You know, I was on a panel yesterday, and one of the panelists was talking about legitimizing your business. And for the those young entrepreneurs out there that are trying to, you know, build something and trying to create something, I mean, first, you have to have a vision, right? And then you have to be able to sell your vision. And you have to be able to sell yourself as a legitimate 
person running a legitimate enterprise, right? And so for me, a lot of legitimacy came from my business school pedigree, came from, you know, the fact that I had, you know, I was legitimized also to to people I was trying to raise money from in the US because I had lived in Nigeria for four years before trying to start a business here. So I wasn't sort of starting out from scratch. But even that said, right, imagine being an investor who put money in in 2014 and is like seven years later waiting to see what the heck their money you know, is doing because <laughs> there's no revenue yet. Right. So <laughs> patient capital, you know, we talk about patient capital in the abstract. My investors are so, so, so patient and, you know, have really bought into the vision and have understood, you know, why it's taking us so long to actually put a product in the market. And I, and I'm so grateful to them for that, but capital is tough. It is hard to raise money and it is hard to give up equity. You know, it's hard to give up ownership of something that you really feel like is an extension of yourself. You know, I think another challenge related to that is, you know, figuring out what is the appropriate amount of yourself that you're putting into the business? You know, I've been at times so, so, so involved that the the failures of the business, you know, I take on emotionally and psychologically as failures of myself, right? And being unable to separate yourself from your business can be really hard. It's a lonely path, right? And so I think that's another challenge. But if we look at the sort of block and tackle challenges of Nigeria, right, there's the standard stuff, you know, no roads, no power, security challenges, you know, to a certain extent, um, you know, human resource challenges, right? Attracting people when you don't have a ton of money um, to come and do something that sounds kind of crazy, right? Uh, Again, it comes back to selling like entrepreneurs, you know, you think that your job is to be the subject matter expert, but really your job very quickly becomes selling yourself, right? And selling your idea, and getting other people to buy into what it is that you want to build because you can't build it by yourself, right? Um, From a regulatory perspective, yeah, I mean, like, Nigeria is a difficult place to navigate. But I think one thing that I benefited from was that when I worked, you know, in the NGO for four years, we did a lot of work with governments. And I sort of got used to this whole idea of like, you know, bring a letter, bring an acknowledgement copy, follow up with the acknowledgement copy, like, go back and do this, you know, be willing to sort of sit in the government office for a couple hours, because the dude is on lunch or hasn't showed up yet. Like, I became very patient with that kind of stuff. And I never, you know, realized that other people were like, oh, paying consultants to do this or paying consultants to do that. Like, I would just sort of rock up to whatever ministry and be like, well, it's okay, I'll wait, you know, and I think that that, um, that helped too to sort of overcome some of those some of those challenges of like the bureaucracy. But um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think like right now, one of our biggest challenges on the you know one of our biggest challenges is is the the security you know concerns. Right, not necessarily that we are scared for our safety or our farmers' safety, but the perception of security in Kaduna is so negative that it's really hard for us to attract talented people to come and join our company and to come and grow our company. And that's been a challenge. People have really, really poor perception of where we are. And that's, um, that's, that's causing us challenges because we're really trying to build a great team. Okay. Have you exhausted the top list? Would you want to add any other one? That's it. Yeah. I think those are well. So I don't even know how you would summarize what I said, but I'm curious to hear your summary. (laughs) Okay, so since you already mentioned, you know, working with the smallholder farmers, that's one. The business part of it will yeah. be two. 
working regulators and um, the envir- the business environment, right? That should be um, three. Yes. And then the perception, yeah, yeah. the perception of both the business and the environment. I, I think that's, um, that's yeah. pretty cool, right? And then capital, always capital. <laughs> oh, yes, 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 exactly. Now, when I talked about you trying to do things differently, um, first of, you would uh, decide to go into uh, planting or cultivation first, uh, not like other competitors who just got into the game of full blast with a processing plant, you know, a lot of money thrown around. Uh, would this be a case of, you know, the road less traveled made all the difference or will make all the difference? And why? Why did you decide to also put the smallholder farmers first? I think it does make a difference. I really do. I think that the barrier to entry in this system and in this industry lies on the agricultural side more. I mean, like, yes, of course, getting a factory built is super expensive. But I mean, Nigeria is a country where there are lots of people with lots of money, right? And if you can sort of speak the magic number, you know, the magic words to the right people, you can unlock resources. So I think that like really taking that farming first approach has given us an edge. It has de-risked our business so significantly, you know, where we know where our supply and, you know, this past year, for example, right, imported tomato paste in March, April was costing about a million naira per ton. We were producing at around 850,000 naira per ton, the same product, right? So, you know, we're actually able to produce at a cheaper cost than the imported price, which means that we can be competitive globally, right? And so even though we haven't launched the product, we have high confidence that, look, we can make something that's going to be a higher quality and that's going to be, you know, uh, better financially for us and for our consumers. In terms of working with smallholder farmers, I mean, that comes down to, I think, like some of it is a business decision and some of it is a values decision. And they're sort of both tied in together. You know, I, I think that the whole idea of a double bottom line is something that, I was attracted to even before I went to business school. Um, I really had this idea that there must be a way for companies to structure their businesses so that their bottom line is inextricably tied to the bottom line of the community or the well-being of the community in which they're operating, right? Rather than, you know, this idea that, oh, CSR comes at the expense of my bottom line. Um, I wanted to build a company and to build a strategy that said, we do better if the people that we're working with in our community do better. And so the way that works for us is that the smallholder farmers that we work with Um, Many of them first farm within our land. So we have, you know, a land allocation issued by the the government and we've, you know, prepared that land into very, very regular farm sizes with, you know, normal, what I would call normal is like sort of a Western irrigation structure where you have, you know, canals and then water going into the fields at regular intervals. And you have fields that are like square or rectangular in shape rather than sort of different sizes. sizes and shapes and you have you know um rows that are like made with a tractor so they're uniform you know all that kind of stuff helps with agronomy and then we're opening up that kind of regular farming environment to smallholder farmers to give them a better chance for success right um and and it's it's you know it's built in that way so that okay look a farmer can actually do a better job watching and maintaining their farm if it's smaller rather than if it's bigger. So if you have like a 5,000 hectare farm and you have one team that's working on it, 
trust me, a lot of the guys are going to be like going out saying they're going to weed and then they just hide in the bushes and go to sleep or something else happens, right? Like they don't feel personally responsible or attached to it. But if you say I've got 5,000 hectares and I'm giving it out to 5,000 farmers, each of those individual farmers wants their one hectare to work. And so they're going to put in the effort and the energy to make that farm productive because they get the upside, right? They get whatever they get above their loan value, they get to keep, right? And they understand that. So they're taking better care of these small plots of land, which is resulting in a higher yield, a lower cost of production, more profit for them, and more product available for the factory at the right price. So we really see that we have built, you know, from our perspective, a win-win scenario where when the farmer does better, we also do better. And to me, you know, I, I started this company in large part because I wanted to have a positive impact economically in a part of Nigeria that really didn't have great opportunities. You know, most of the employment, most of the big companies, most of, you know, the, the sexy jobs are in Lagos, Port Harcourt, maybe Abuja, you know, you don't see as much of that sort of, um, exciting new company in the North and you don't see as much economic agency in the rural North. And I really wanted to sort of make a difference um, just because again, like traveling to all these Northern cities and States, you know, the level of poverty here is much, 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 much more than the level of poverty in Lagos. And people really don't have agency in their lives. And that was important for me to try and, make a company that could be profitable and sustainable while also changing the economic landscape for the people um, in the surrounding community. Wow, that's uh, very thoughtful. Now, let's spend a minute or two talking um, about the efforts by the government and the regulators um, in helping your business grow. Sure. So how much of an Um, effort did you get from them? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, look, I can't avoid saying that because I, well, I'm half Indian, but I look white, right? And I think that like, I get away with, you know, people ask less of me, right? Like I'm getting less of the, you know, people are like, oh, she speaks too much English, right? We're not going to ask her for this. We're not going to ask her for that, right? And, you know, in, in business school, I mean, it's true, right? And I benefit from that because they're like, oh, she doesn't understand. And I look there and I like, I know what they're asking me for, but I just look dumb and I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, and sort of like play dumb until they give up. And I know that I that's a privilege that I have that I probably wouldn't have if I were Nigerian, right? They would be like, no, you understand the game. You understand what we're asking you for. And you're not going to get this until you, you know, cop something up. But, uh, you know, it's been easier for me to do things in the right way. And, you know, we have, I had this professor in business school, um, Clay Christensen, who said, you know, it's easier to say no 100% of the time than to say no 99% of the time, right? Because as soon as you say yes, once it becomes a slippery slope, right? Now, how are you going to justify when you're saying yes, and when you're saying no? And so we've been able to sort of walk that line, um, you know, with with the agencies at the federal level, and, you know, everybody who comes looking for money once they think you're successful. Right. And so we've been able to sort of keep a lot of those guys at bay. And then, you know, at the state level, one of the reasons we chose Kaduna state was because Kaduna state clearly demonstrated that they wanted private sector businesses to come in and and create jobs in their state. Right. I looked at over 10 different states across Northern Nigeria 
limiting myself to the north because of weather constraints because tomatoes have you know very specific weather conditions under which they thrive and under which you can get the best yields and the Kaduna state government you know even when i was a small company we're like 10 people you know we don't really know what this girl is doing but they made the effort they said okay you know what we're going to take a chance on this girl and we think that she's going to build something and we want her to build it here and so through the framework that they've sort of put in place for private sector companies, they have this group called Kadipa, the Kaduna State Investment Promotion Agency. And they're my first stop whenever I run into an issue. I go to Kadipa and I'm like, hey, Kadipa, can you guys help me with this? Hey, Kadipa, like these guys are asking me for this. Is it legitimate? Hey, Kadipa, you know, um, we have a question about X, Y, Z. Um, they've set up a structure not only to attract investors, but then to help them solve problems, you know, after they've already set up operations. And that's made it a lot easier for me even to deal with federal agencies and, you know, governments and things like that, because I don't always know, you know, how to navigate this stuff. Um, and so having a, you know, having an agency that really just wants to clear roadblocks for the private sector has been really helpful. Okay, so let's get into some other areas like um, new technologies. What does the future for tomato-based production yeah. hold in Nigeria? Knowing that with even about five processing plants in um, Nigeria, we still import a lot of tomato paste. I've heard of hydroponics, I've heard of greenhouse farming. Um, how do we use all of these things to solve the production or imports or export gap? Yeah, it's a good question. There are amazing technologies in agriculture. And I think, you know, on the processing side, honestly, like tomato processing hasn't changed that much in the past 40 years. And it's probably not going to change that much in the next 40 years. The major changes on the processing side are around energy efficiency, right? How do you get the tomato paste made using less energy? But, you know, tomato processing, it's basically like a kitchen, right? Like you have your blender, you blend your tomatoes, then you throw them in a pot, you boil them. If you have a pressure cooker, you use that because it's a little bit faster. And then you have your stew that's a bit thick, right? Um, a processing factory pretty much does the same thing just on an industrial scale. And so it becomes a question of, you know, how, how energy efficient can you become? But on the farming side, that's where I think there are so many technological advances that could be used, um, you know, to improve yield and to improve quality and to, you know, reduce costs. Greenhouse farming is interesting because a lot of people ask me about that. They're like, why don't you just put greenhouses up? You know, greenhouses can get yields. If we want to talk numbers for a second, you know, greenhouses can get yields of 150 tons per hectare, whereas open field farming in Nigeria, the highest we've been able to get is 70 and our average yields are about 40. Um, you know, by the way, the average yield in, in Nigeria outside of tomato joss is five. So we're still doing pretty good in terms of, you know, our yield increases, but it's way lower than a greenhouse. The challenge with a greenhouse um, becomes the fact that it's not just about the yield, right? The yield is really important. That lowers your cost of production, but the asset cost of a one hectare greenhouse is very expensive. Um, it's much, much more expensive to make a, you know, a one hectare greenhouse than it is to develop a one hectare open field farm. So that's first and foremost a challenge, right? It's like 10 times more expensive to make a one hectare greenhouse than to make a one hectare open field farm. And you're not getting 10 times the yield as a result, right? The second challenge is that with a greenhouse for processing, so greenhouses are great if you're selling to a grocery store, if you want to sell year-round production to markets or hotels or people who want them in salads. 
But for processing, you also have this issue of logistics, right? For processing, I've got my factory can take in 84 tons a day of tomatoes, right? Which is about what, four trucks, something like that, three, four trucks of tomatoes every single day. In a greenhouse, you're picking one or two fruits from each plant every single day. Whereas in an open field farm, you're picking one third of the fruits from that same plant. So logistically, you'd have to have way more area of greenhouse farming to be able to get up to three trucks a day. You'd have to have, you know, probably eight times more land under cultivation in order to get enough tomatoes each and every day to put into your factory. And so then the capital cost of, you know, a thousand hectare greenhouse infrastructure becomes really expensive. And so, you know, that's kind of the reason why we've been focusing on open fields. But if I can continue for two more minutes, because I know I'm like talking a lot about technical stuff that might be it's fine, a little it's too fine, technical. It's fine. But it's totally fine. The- <laughs> All right, good. On the open field side, you know, with open field farming, there's still so many technological advancements that you can put in place. So to give you an example, um, right now, Tomato Joss, in addition to building the factory, we also um, used the money raised by Goodwell and uh, ARAF Invested World and Aletheia to build a new farm, to build an additional farmland for our smallholder farmers to work on. And that farm is using drip irrigation, which I'm sure people have heard of. Drip irrigation is a game changer for yield. Um, you can, you know, you're getting a smaller amount of water over a longer period of time. So you have less waste, you know, water um, doesn't end up collecting at the bottom end of the farm and just sort of draining away. And you also get less fertilizer runoff because again, the water is going very slowly. You can fertilize through your irrigation system. So you can actually mix your fertilizer into your water and then run it through your drip tapes, which is a much more efficient way of getting fertilizer to the plants. And you can give them, you know, more, you can use less water to get them more water, right? So it's a way more efficient system from a resource perspective. And, you know, with the system that we're setting up, it's also quite technological. So the point where if we have mobile network, which is another challenge that's been, you know, uh, around in Kaduna lately is the network issues because of security. You could actually program and control your irrigation system remotely from town and have the irrigation system running. You know, our irrigation team could be able to run our irrigation system from Kaduna and troubleshoot and find problems and solve them remotely, um, which also can, you know, be hugely beneficial for, for everybody involved. So there's there's so much, you know, even, even tractors, the types of implements you use, the seed technologies. I mean, there are so many things that um, we're trying to bring into the ecosystem that we're working in that you know, are already used in America or already used even in Kenya and some of the other countries that are, you know, in Africa, but more agronomically advanced. Um, There's just, there's so much that we can do. And we're so excited to start bringing some of these technologies in for, you know, the benefit of our farmers. Well, this is really interesting. I I really hope to visit the farm um, um, someday, very soon, maybe next year. Uh, So um, I see all (laughs) these things uh, myself and um, see, because I'm very sure um, there are of impacts that these things would actually make in the ecosystem now we're actually out of time but then i'd have to just force in like two questions first 
what roles and jobs can function in this value chain that's been created by tomato paste production? That's the first one. What roles and what jobs can function in this value chain? And the second would be, you've been in Nigeria for close to two decades. What would you describe as your most memorable moments? Maybe, okay, maybe one, two or three at most. <laughs> okay. First, quickly, jobs. There are so many jobs in farming itself, but then there are so many jobs around the support system for the ecosystem. So, you know, even at a local level, at a small level, right, if you can become somebody who, you know, is work drill farms and you sit together a chemical crew that can spray your fields more efficiently and more safely than you can do it, right? There's obviously tractor services, which I know um, different companies have tried to work on. There are, you know, I think that honestly, like running a hardware store, like one of the things I miss the most about America is being able to go somewhere and just buy a toolbox and buy, you know, a set of wrenches and buy, you know, whatever like small springs of this caliber and this tension or whatever, right? Like all that kind of agricultural supply stuff, I think would be really valuable to have in high quality, in high availability. So definitely, you know, looking at, you know, going into farms and asking the farm managers, what's your biggest problem? What's your biggest headache? You know, all of their headaches are business opportunities for young entrepreneurs. So there's a ton of opportunity at every level, I think, of the system. You don't have to just focus on cold chain. You don't have to just focus on last mile delivery. There's tons and tons of opportunity create so to solve problems for the farms if you if you yourself want to be a farmer. in terms of my most memorable experience in two decades wow i think maybe like my first traditional wedding i remember coming in wife's parents house because it was like you know they were like there and then they were going to take her away from her parents house or whatever and i remember seeing this pile of yams like floor to ceiling yams and I was just like oh my god and I thought they were logs because I as you know it's like we don't have that kind of a yam in America so I was like why is there like a pile of wood in the living room and then there were like chickens running around and I was like what you know and I was also like why am I here like don't these people think it's weird that a stranger just showed up in their house but the warmth and the hospitality with which I was received you know everybody's like excited it's a wedding I didn't understand that wedding crashing is like very common and it's not a big deal you know I was like do they know do they even want me here this is so strange but it kind of like felt like that the chaos the unknown the known the warmth the welcome that I received I think like all of that really made me feel like wow like there's something special about this place and so yeah that kind of that's kind of stuck with me I guess (laughs) okay (laughs) the beauty and the chaos together you know merged yeah, the beauty of the chaos, exactly. Thank you very much, um, the CEO and founder of Tomato Just Farming and Processing Limited, Mira Meta. It was really, really an insightful conversation and interesting too. Thanks, Tony. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to catch up on all the live shows right here on africatechradio.com.